0: An alternative investment or alternative investment fund is an investment or fund that invests in asset classes other than stocks, bonds, and cash. The term is a relatively loose one and includes tangible assets such as precious metals, art, wine, antiques, coins, or stamps, and some financial assets such as real estate, commodities, private equity, distressed securities, hedge funds, exchange funds, carbon credits, venture capital, film production, financial derivatives, and cryptocurrencies. Today, we're going to bring on someone who's been in the space for quite some time, and hopefully you'll be able to pick up some wisdom and learn as much as you can about alternative investments. I'm DJ Motri of the Black Equity Network, and welcome to the Black Equity Podcast. of the black equity podcast and for the first time we're actually having someone on the show who is an expert in fund management someone that can actually speak to uh what fund management is all about we have doranis jonakin on the line doranis are you there
1: hi i'm here man and and great great to be here and, and uh looking forward to the conversation
0: Definitely, definitely. Welcome to the Black Equity Podcast. For those who don't know who you are, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your company.
1: Uh, yeah, so I'm Doreen Soniken, Like you said, I am an uh, alternative uh, investment manager based here in Detroit. So my firm, Persia Capital Management, we are a registered investment advisor, and we focus on alternative strategies for our, our clients and our investors. Um, and when I say alternative, um, you know, really referring to outside of the traditional asset classes, like, you know, your your mutual funds or your index funds. Um, we typically focus on um, arbitrage strategies um, and fixed income and equities and volatility strategies and, and fixed income and equities and derivatives.
0: Dope, dope. How did, how did you get into the alternatives? How did that happen?
1: Man, that's a great question, man. So I, I'd say my career took a uh, – a, a non-traditional path. So okay. um, just to kind of give you a little bit of my background. So I graduated from Mississippi State in 2008 with a uh, degree in banking and finance. Okay. And um, as soon as I graduated, I knew I wanted to go straight to Wall Street. And so I found a job at a, uh, my first job was actually at, uh, at, a, at a small brokerage firm. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Boiler Room. Yeah, but if you want, like... <laughs> yeah, so I, I was that, at a small... Is
0: that Nia Long in that one?
1: Yes, yes, Nia she is, yes, she yes, is in me. that movie. Yes, and is. You know, uh, a side note, Nia Long has been my all-time favorite crush. Um, but that's another story. I, I so. won't tell nobody. I won't tell <laughs> nobody. <Go ahead. laughs> Let's keep that under wraps. <laughs> but either way, um, so I started out at, those are called Chop Shops pretty much, where I was making, you know, four or 500 calls a day. Mm-hmm. And um, from there, I moved on to an investment management firm in Midtown. Now, mind you, this is early 2008. So I moved on to a large investment firm in Midtown called Cowan Financial Group and uh, was there for about a year and a half. And, you know, honestly, I remember vividly before graduating from my senior year in college, uh, my investments professor told us, he said, hey, guys, you're getting ready getting ready to walk into one of the most tumultuous, t- tumultuous times in the markets ever. And, you know, of course, we're green behind the ears. We didn't quite understand what he was saying. Now, fast forward to, you know, mid 2009 and the entire financial economy had pretty much fallen through the floor. And as a result of that, me and, you know, thousands of my colleagues were were essentially let go. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was my first experience with capitalism, you know, basically where um, it's a zero sum game. There are some that win and some that lose. And and essentially, while being in New York, I, I found out that, you know, and if you don't really understand the financial system, then you can fall victim to it. And so from there, I um, went back to school like most millennials that graduated in 2008 did, <laughs> got a master's degree in finance and um, started my career, just kind of revamped my career um, at a hedge fund in Miami trading um, trading equity options or derivatives. And so that's how I pretty much got into the, the derivative space. And um from there, moved over to the capital market side for a few corporations, um issuing commercial paper or, or unsecured debt, and then um, finally landing on a um an a b s desk here at Michigan doing I did about thirty five billion dollars of transactions there, and so you know I said Eight or nine years of experience in the space. How can I combine um the years of my experience together and and provide a product to to, um, to investors in my community and um, institutions who would willing, be willing to uh, invest in my perspective, provide them with an opportunity to take advantage of market opportunities. And so that, that's how I kind of put together the, you know, the derivatives and the, you know, the fixed income components together and focus more on convertible bond arbitrage.
0: Wow. Wow. That is, that's quite a story. So I want to kind of go over some of those things that, that you mentioned. What was the major difference or the culture difference between Mississippi State and being in New York? What were the major differences that
1: you can remember? Oh, man, that's a, uh, <laughs> that's a really good question. So I'm not sure if, uh, if, any of you, if any of you guys out there listening have ever been to Mississippi, but it's definitely uh, the deep south. And when I say the deep south, meaning, you know, everyone moves slow. Uh there's not a rush to do anything. um mm-hmm. you know there's a you know the saying is you know it'll happen when it happens or it'll get done or we'll get to it. and so kind of growing up in that in that pace uh or in that environment, I developed really a slow pace and a, really more of an appreciation for life and family and uh, and friends. And so making the transition to New York was the complete opposite. So here we are moving from the deep south to the you know northern corner of the United States and probably one of the most busiest largest cities in the country um the the financial mecca of the United States and you know some parts of the world pretty much where you know sometimes you may have to fight an old an old woman for a, a seat on the subway mm-hmm. right so so it was a it was a stark contrast from you know where i grew up and you know where i was living at the time which really I'd say was a benefit for me because it forced me to become a chameleon. It forced me to say, okay, this is the concept. This is the way of life. You either adapt and survive or you don't adapt and you, you, you know, you die or you, you phase out. And so when, even when you go back to, you know, the beginning of time, when you look at some of the creatures that God has made, the ones that have been able to adapt have been around since you know for centuries. The ones that have not, they, they've died off. And so I, I understood that concept at that moment. And I said, hey, if you want to make it in this world or if you want to make it in this industry, you need to be able to adapt to whatever environment you're in. And, and that's exactly what I did. And, and I say that was probably one of the main lessons that I learned from being in that space is, you know, adaptation can look differently for different people. Um, but as long as you're learning you're you're open to you know evolving and moving forward then um I feel like you you'll continue to survive so with that
0: adaptability you then i'm not sure if I have the story right but you end up in miami so yep. now we got a whole different uh, yeah culture how how is that experience just culturally and understanding uh just you know living and, and, and being in the
1: city no I mean i you know To be honest the the culture from new york to miami was was similar in some respects uh i'd say the respects with regards to the uh the different nationalities you know growing up in mississippi it was basically black white and and maybe some latin americans um however in new york and in miami you have you know it's like a melting pot in both cities mm-hmm. and so being able to experience you know or have friends that were Jamaican or Haitian in New York and then you know being able to have friends that were Venezuelan or Colombian or Puerto Rican in Miami or or even vice versa you know I had friends in New York that were Puerto Rican and friends in, in, in Miami that were uh, you know Jamaican or from the DR mm-hmm. and so uh, that that allowed me to not just open up my eyes from a, I guess, from a corporate standpoint, but from a cultural standpoint. You know, to be able to look at, look at life from a different lens and say, okay, um, oftentimes as an investor, as you're managing money, one of the most uh, important impacts that you want to keep in mind is the financial uh, behavioral finance. Right? It's it's a term, or it's a it's an actual term that's often overlooked. But basically, being able to understand the the mentality of the investors that are in the marketplace and and try to rationale, um, you know, what they're thinking and how they're expected to move and being exposed to different cultures and different people. It helped me develop my own framework or synapses around, you know, behavioral finance and the different international cultures and how that can can impact the international markets. Dope.
0: Dope. So now you're in Detroit. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so now now I'm in Detroit. It's about sixteen degrees outside. <laughs> now now
0: I may have missed it, but did you grow up in Detroit or how did you end up in Detroit?
1: No, so I, I grew up in Mississippi, born and raised there, okay. and I ended up in Detroit. I was um I was actually headhunted by um, a big three firm here okay. in uh, Michigan and um Ford Ford Motor Company. And while in Miami, I remember I got the call. First I got yeah, I got a call of voicemail. Um, I got a 313 number. It popped up on my phone. I'm like, okay, I don't know who this is. I'm not familiar with the area code. And then I got a voicemail and it was from a, um, from a Ford recruiter that said that they had come across my profile and wanted to speak with me about a leadership position that they had, uh, or oh, excuse me, a leadership program that they had at Ford. And I'm like, okay, well, I've never been to Michigan. You know, I'm a Laker fan, so I don't even like the. I don't even like <laughs> Detroit, right? <laughs> so, I
0: feel
1: you, brother. I feel so, you. So you know the the thought of me moving from Miami, you know, where it's 72 and sunny every day, pretty much, to you know an area where um, I have no friends, no family there, and it's extremely cold, was not something that I was looking in looking forward to. But after doing my research and talking to some mentors in the space, and actually talking to one of my friends. I found out that the leadership program that was being offered, to, extended to me, was one of the best leadership programs with regards to uh, capital markets in the industry from a corporate perspective. So if you kind of take a step back, if you want to get in the capital markets, you could either take the investment banking route and go work at a big investment bank in New York or Chicago or maybe even Texas, or you can take a you know the corporate route and find yourself in the capital markets area within that corporation, but the corporation has to be large enough to where they have an international presence, and they're managing their financials within house. Okay. And so a lot of the big, a lot of the big three do that, um, and a lot of the larger corporations do that as well. So when you look at like your, your apples, your googles. Um, you know, your PG&Es or your, you know, your Procter & Gamble's, your GM's, your Ford's, they all have these in-house, very robust capital market teams that manage their pension funds, they have trading, you know, their own trading desk, they do their own currency hedging and futures hedging and, you know, issue their own ABS products. And so that's what I was exposed to at Ford, which added an additional layer to to my, my experience within the capital market space. Dope. So, now you mentioned
0: behavioral finance. And I, I think I remember that course when I was getting my masters. Yeah. Um I, I have a masters in acquisitions. And so okay. what I'm what I'm what I'm wondering is how does behavioral finance and uh having a, a fund in, in the alternative space, how do those two relate?
1: Oh man, that's a good question. Um so I'd say first and foremost it there's a strong correlation between uh, the impact of my personal behavioral finance, I guess you could say, and, and the, you know, my performance with regards to uh, how I manage my portfolio. So, you know, very, you know, I'm human and just like all other humans, there are some things that, you know, we may be in a position, or we may have a trade on, or, you know, we have a, a strong conviction for an idea that we've generated and there are often times where I have to maybe coach myself through um, certain periods if, you know, there, there may be a change in the underlying earnings of the business or uh, a news report that may, comes out, may come out. Or the just basically the asset that I'm investing in is not performing, you know, at the pace I would like for it to. And so... Just kind of, like I said, going back to, you know, one aspect of behavioral finance that can have an impact on, you know, how I could potentially behave or, you know, physically or mentally with regards to how I manage my position. And so from from the alternative space, I guess, kind of stepping out more broadly outside of me. Sure. Being able to understand, okay, how are the large institutions thinking? You know, what's their perspective? And then on the flip side, what are retail investors thinking, and what's their perspective, mm-hmm. right? Because now, why does that um, matter?
0: Why does that matter?
1: Well, that that matters tremendously because when you think about it, the short-term blips or volatility that happens within assets are usually created by retail investors, right? Um, and retail investors are most oftentimes impacted by, you know, whether it's news or you know, short-term speculation or something as simple as, you know, they're they're working out at their CrossFit gym and, you know, their buddy, it's like, hey, you know, you know, buy the latest cannabis stock or something like that, right? And so just news traveling within the the retail investor space causes that short-term volatility. However, on the flip side, when you start looking at institutions, their positions are basically managed around um, a core position that they may have in the underlying asset. Right or some type of financial obligation that they may have in the future. Right. And right. so that so whenever you're looking at you know the markets at as a, as a whole, oftentimes what happens is you'll see short-term volatility impacted by retail investors, and long-term price movements or um, trend-setting um, established by larger institutions. Dope. Dope. I, I... Want
0: more access to the Black Equity Network? Perfect. I have just a solution for you. I want you to text six six nine two three eight two four three four. 238 2434 Once again, that's six six nine two three eight two four three four. 238 2434 I want you to text the keyword black equity to 669-2434. Now, what is that going to do? That's going to give you access to our personal Rolodex of business contacts. So every time that we have a potential business partnership, a business opportunity, someone says, hey, I want you to let people know about a job opportunity. We're going to send a message out to everybody who has text black equity to 669-238-2434. If I were you, I would send a text message right now. Back to the show like the way you put that yeah uh, you know i think a lot of people will, will say because uh, when they listen to this podcast a lot of what we do is we pull news clips and we're studying culture and society and some people would ask well what does the news have to do with you know equity and investing and, mm-hmm. and understanding culture but even if the news isn't necessarily right even if it isn't necessarily uh the most uh important news if it's impacting the way somebody's thinking it mm-hmm. could shift the market that day
1: it could and it very you, well could if you're not
0: in tune with it then you won't know that it, it just happened
1: yeah yeah you no you're exactly right and and oftentimes um like i said you know depending on you know some of the listeners out there depending on your investment horizon mm-hmm. um that could be an opportunity for you on either end an opportunity for you to make money or lose money. Exactly. Right. You know, and you know, I'm not a, I don't condone, I'm not going to say I don't condone, I don't participate in, you know, short term speculative trading because I'm managing money professionally. However, there are some people out there that do that for a living and do that professionally. And so to your point, I think it really comes back, it goes back to what's your understanding of your investment. And I think, that and from that perspective, um, from a retail investor's vantage point, oftentimes that's where um, mistakes typically happen. Mm-hmm. It's where they don't really understand the investment that they're making. Um, it's the analysis or the proper analysis hasn't been done. There's a surface level of analysis, and that analysis is basically okay, what does the news article say? And what does uh you know you know a blog article say, and you know what does my friend say, okay, I've done enough enough analysis let me buy this stock on my acorn app <laughs> right, yeah,
0: but as an institution as someone who's thinking longer term, what are you paying attention to more often than not
1: so what I typically like to pay attention to is <clears throat> first and foremost um senior management, and what's there what's their prognosis for the company and the the health of the business? And then I like to get an idea of where are they now and where, where does senior management expect to take the company, you know, the next year, two years, three years. And after they've laid out that plan, what steps are they taking to actually, you know, uh, achieve those goals? That's the first thing I like to look at. And so whenever I start my analysis on a company, I go to their latest, um, either earnings call or, um, their latest, uh, press release or their latest, you know, manage MDNA or management discussing an analysis that they may put out that says, okay, Hey, this is our prognosis on our company and our industry. Right. And so a lot of times they have, these corporations have much more data and information than we have as the investor. And so I go to them to get my information with regards to the industry and where it's heading and where the company is heading. And then from there, of course, you know, I dive into the financials and I say, okay, what are the numbers telling me? Does it correlate with what the senior management team is telling me? Right. And then from there, um, and I'm keeping this very high level. Sure. I take, I take a look at the assets and say, okay, are these assets under or overpriced? Is there an opportunity for me to take take advantage of the price movement back to fair market value.
0: Is there enough room in the deal to actually
1: make money on it? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, with any investment, um, there's a, there's a target return that we typically look for. And so if that, if that target return, um, if I feel like the probability of that target, that target return being met, does not make sense? Then we don't take the investment. And just kind of, you know, diving into some of the science behind uh, pricing assets or just finance in general, every asset, the price is based on an expected return. And that expected return is what's used to put a valuation on that asset for that individual investor, right? So if we were to just simplify it, if I'm looking at investing in a stock and my desired return is, let's say, 5%, right? Then the value, uh, I'll be I'll be willing to buy that that asset at a higher price than you would if your desired return is ten percent, mm-hmm. right? And so you'll say, okay, if my desired return is ten percent, then I need to buy that that asset or that stock at a cheaper price. If it's trading at twenty five, then maybe I'll think about buying it at twelve or or, or 10, 10 or twelve bucks. But for me, I may say, okay, if it's trading at twenty five but my target return is only 4%, that's what I need to, you know, to feel good about my investment, then I might buy it at 20. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's, that's, that's the prognosis, I guess, kind of going back to behavioral finance is kind of getting an understanding of, you know, who's investing in the asset and what's their objective. Right. And then, you know, if I can be on the other side of that, again, like I mentioned earlier in the segment with, with capital markets and investing, there's a, as a zero sum game that's someone who wins and someone who loses and so you just you you want to be on the side that wins more <laughs> often than not right yeah. uh so from what i'm hearing uh,
0: trash and treasure is all in the eyes of the beholder
1: exactly exactly and to that point i was just reading a um, now that the now that the, uh, the the year is winding down and the market's are pretty pretty slow I just picked up a book uh, called Delivering Alpha. It was written by <clears throat> a lady who managed the pension fund for the World Bank for about 30 years or so. Yeah. And and one of the one of the segments in the book, she talked about basically um, just because um, an asset or a product may be the best out on the market, it may not be the best for you. And the analogy she used was. At the time, she was getting ready. You know, she was looking to be married, and she had two men in her life. There was one guy who was, you know, Mr. Suave. You know, making a ton of money, um, had all, you know, very intelligent, had the connections, and that's who she was attracted to. But there was another guy who was, you know, extremely smart, but more family-oriented, more, you know, focused on being there for her and you know, just kind of building a family together. And the you know, the prognosis she made was, you know, both of these are great, but which one is the best fit for me?
0: Right, right. And that's all up to her own individual experiences and the things that she's been through and how she's envisioned for her own life.
1: Yep, exactly, exactly. And that and that could parlay over to you know the investment field um there could be you know an investment out there it could be the the best the best investment under the sun but if you have a collection or a portfolio of other investments you also have to figure out and think through does this investment make sense within my portfolio right right and that that's extremely important because um you know for example using uh, stock A It could be, you know, the best stock trading on the street. However, if you were to add it to your portfolio, it could have a very, very strong correlation to maybe three or four other stocks within your portfolio. You know, and so now that even though you've added that position to your portfolio, you've actually decreased your level of diversification.
2: Mm. And
1: so you may say, okay, well, it's it's great individually, but it doesn't work for me collectively. And so Mm. that may be something that you pass on.
0: And in order to do that, you have to have some sort of a vision
1: of what you want for your portfolio
0: and have kind of a a long-term strategy of, you know, how is this all going to play out? Even if you don't know what you're going to acquire yet, you have Mm -hmm. to have some sort of uh, understanding of what is it I'm looking to accomplish here.
1: No, you're exactly right. You you hit the nail on the head. Um, I kind of equate it to, I kind of equate the markets to uh, a battlefield, Okay. right? Um, when you look at it, at any trade or any investment, you have someone that it, that would like for the price of that asset to go up, and then someone who's selling it would like to for the price of the asset to go down,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? So basically, the you know so you have bulls and you have bears, right? And so they're constantly at a battle. It doesn't matter, you know, if you look at any stock or bond or option that's being traded. You see, there's a constant fluctuation between, you know, the number of people that want to buy it and the number of people that want to sell it and at, for what price. And so there's a constant battle. And so when you think about it from that perspective, the stock market or capital markets is like a battlefield. And so I tell people that, you know, I talk to, I say, would you follow a general into battle that doesn't have a battle plan?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And so it's like, OK, if we're going out to war. And we're going to, you know, essentially fight the enemy, but we don't know, we don't know who the enemy is. We haven't done any intel. We don't have a strategy <laughs> in place. We don't have a plan in place, you know. And so, but right. b- but we're going, right? And so we we haul up and we we, you know, get in the B two fighter jets, we fly over and you know, helicopter in and we land and we're we're let's say we're on the beachfront and then we're getting ready to charge, but we don't have a plan, right? And so you wouldn't follow that. If you were in battle, because you'd say, hey, this doesn't make sense. I'm putting my life on the line, but no one has a plan or, or strategy in place. And so you kind of look, I wouldn't, you know, it's not life or death, but when you look at your, your investments or your funding or your dollar, right, I, I, I equate every dollar to an employee that should work for you. Mm-hmm. You're basically putting your employees in dollar form at risk. If you don't have a strand, uh, a plan or a strategy in place before you actually attack the markets. Great analogy.
0: Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, about managing uh, thirty-five billion dollars. Did I hear that number correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, it's not quite managing um, issuing. So issuing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. Tell me more um, about that. Yeah. So, y- y- have you heard of mortgage-backed securities? Yes. Like the the thing that pretty much. Uh,
0: Crashed everything. Took us all out, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so the way mortgage-backed securities, the are, are, way they work is basically uh, banks and institutions, um, whenever they issue the mortgages, to get the assets off their books, they typically package them or, or combine them and sell them to another investor. That investor basically gives cash to them now and they receive the cash flows in the future, mm. right? So that's a, that's a mortgage-backed security. And so there are other products out there that are structured similarly, so there's mortgage-backed securities, there are, you know, auto loans or car loan, asset-backed mm-hmm. securities. There's credit cards, you know, mm-hmm. credit card debt. Uh, so credit card-backed, uh, ABS paper. There's also, um, <clears throat> it's crazy, man. Like, um, there's, there are even asset-backed securities based on um, tax credits for energy use. So, you know, they're securitizing everything. So, right. Right. If it has a cash flow base, they're trying to to securitize it. So basically, what my role was, I issued auto loan backed ABS paper, right? So whenever Ford sold, you know, sold vehicles, no, excuse me, whenever Ford, let's say Ford needed a, a billion and a half dollars to, you know, launch a new project or to do whatever they needed to do, <clears throat> one method that they would raise that capital is going to the capital markets and issuing debt. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is I would say I would pull maybe 40, um, 50,000 auto loans, package them together, structure a deal to where, you know, we meet the standard or the rating agency's criteria and the waterfall pays off the investors. And then I would sell those in the market, you know, working with investment bankers and lawyers. And so I did that for U.S. market, Canada market, public and private. So, uh, like I said, I did about $35 billion, billion dollars of those transactions and then moved over to, um, you know, the fixed income and, and um, trading desk from there. So I did that for about four years and then then worked on the trading desk for, for about a year or so before I, uh, before I started my own fund.
0: So what was that moment where you decided, okay, I've learned enough to get to the point where it's time for me to have, my own firm even though they're still learning to do I'm sure you learn something new every day how did you know it was time to take that leap
1: um you know I've, honestly, i honestly I wouldn't say I I knew I okay. I just I I wanted to take the leap because I wanted to have my own investment firm I felt confident when I could dissect the legal documents gotcha um and and the reason for that is because as I started to move up the corporate ladder um, and really kind of understand uh, business, business uh, really based on underlying agreements, which mm-hmm. are legal documents. And so as I started to do these deals, I li- it was almost like I went to law school because I worked a lot with attorneys, both in-house counsel and external counsel and you know i helped draft some of the language within the documents that we would use to issue the paper and that really expanded my uh, my intellectual capacity to be able to really dissect and understand okay <clears throat> what are the legal ramifications if this doesn't work out right what are the, what are the opportunities that i can take advantage of if this does work out um what most importantly what are the risks and how are they mitigated or what are the risks that I'm exposed to and how can I protect myself? And once I understood that, then I said I could say, oh, okay, this is how business works. So if I want to go out and buy, you know, a real estate property, I can dissect the language within a legal document. And then I can tell myself or I can do my analysis and say, okay, this is what the risks are. How can I mitigate that? If I want to buy a stock, you know, I can look at the prospectus of the company, which is a legal document. You know, I can read through it and I can dissect it and I can understand it. But most importantly with my firm, we invest in fixed income products or bonds and the bond is a legal obligation. It says, you know, hey, we are borrowing money from the investors and we're required by law to pay you guys back because if we don't, you can Mm -hmm. sue us in a court of law And you can claim all of our assets. Right. And so when I said, "Okay, I can understand what callback provisions are, you know, what are probability of payments? What's a waterfall? You know, what are the covenants, uh, you know, reps and warranties? As I'm understanding this language. And at the same time, understanding how to price fixed income products. And the impacts that interest rates can have on that, the impacts of kind of where you sit on the on the capital stack and you know the expected return on investment. Then I say, well, you know what? I can take my experience from managing managing money while in Miami and combine it with my deal execution experience on the fixed income side, and I could put the two together and I can start my own shop. And what really propelled me to do that was. To put it out there, I mm-hmm. was the only I was the only black person in the Treasury leadership program at Ford while I was there. Right. And as the as I continued to climb the corporate ladder, I didn't see too many people that looked like me. Right. And so what I've always wanted to do was to create was to provide access. Right. Provide access for, you know, someone like me who, you know, a person of color that wants to get into the industry but may may not have the ability to if they didn't go to like harvard or yale or Wharton, or they're they're not part of the, the you know the club um you know just to keep it frank if you go look at some of the the larger um let's say i wouldn't say publicly traded private equity or hedge funds out there but if you just look at a majority of these asset managers they're owned by you know middle-aged or older white men Mm -hmm. and they're they're staffed by middle-aged and younger white men and women Mm -hmm. and maybe a few Asians right and so you don't you won't find that many black owned and black black managed investment firms and you have a few in Chicago you have a few in New York but that's about it and so I was you know I wanted to tell my I told myself okay how can you help change the narrative, you know, and kind of pick up the torch from what, you know, the baby boomers before you, you know, like the Robert Smiths or, you know, the guys at Miller Monroe or the guys at Ariel Capital, Capital, what, you know, that they, or Loop Capital, what these guys have done, how can you step in and continue to, you know, trailblaze like they have and provide access for people like that, you know, that would like to get into the space, but there are barriers. And then on the flip side, how can you provide access to minority uh, wealth to have, you know, someone that looks like them manage their money? So the, the I guess
0: the multi-billion dollar question is for our listeners is what ways uh, can they gain access while working with you? What are the different avenues of working with you and how does that look?
1: Um, yeah. So, you know, we right now you know, our um, our firm is in is like I said an alternative asset management and we have pretty much two two houses within our shop. We okay. have the asset management side where we um, we execute our convertible bond strategy. We execute our relative value strategy, which is uh, very similar to the convertible bond strategy. It's a market neutral approach, but instead of using bonds, we use the underlying equity and um, derivative products. And, um, I'm putting this out there, but my goal is uh, by summer of twenty twenty mm-hmm. to launch our own mutual fund, okay, so there aren't that many black owned and run mutual funds out there. There's only one company that I know of that's Brown Capital Management out of philadelphia and um and so my goal is to have a millennial owned black owned <laughs> uh, mutual fund that we provide to to our patrons and our investors and just nice. the market in general. Um, because the, the the cool thing about mutual funds is anyone can access them and anyone can invest in them, right? And so that's uh, through those two avenues that we have right now. That's one way that you know people can work with us. The convertible bond arbitrage fund, the minimum investment for that is 100K. Mm-hmm. Um, however, typically a lot of the accounts that we have open are at least half a million and up. How, and on the flip side, the relative value fund, um, that's a that's a product that we we launched because uh, we wanted to capture you know people within within our age bracket millennials who have been working who have some you know disposable income that want to put their money to work and want to get that 20 25% return on their money and so that minimum investment is 10k right so right. we have the, we have those two options and then on the the other side the second part of our shop is the wealth management division. Okay. So within wealth management, um, like I said, we're a registered investment advisor, so we can work with people individually and provide them with holistic financial plans and wealth management um, solutions. And so we're building out our, we'll continue to build out our wealth management team now. Right now, we have a team of three advisors. Um, we're looking to build that out going into 2020, where we'll be able to impact more people in our community and provide more information like this um, with regards to a holistic approach. And so oftentimes, um, most people don't fall in that ultra high net worth bucket, but they may fall in that financial planning or financial advising bucket. And we want to make sure that we don't just exclude those people, which typically happens, you know, at like your Goldman Sachs or your Morgan Stanley's or your JP Morgan, you know, where they say, hey, if you don't have at least a million and, and a half of liquid assets that we can manage, then we mm-hmm. can't really talk to you.
0: Right. It's, uh, so for those who are interested in that wealth management side, uh, what are some of the things they should have prepared before they come and actually contact your, your company?
1: Um, you know, for folks that are interested in the financial planning or wealth management, I'd say the the main thing to have prepared is just an idea of what your objectives are. Yeah, um, because the entire plan is centered around you and your objectives. And typically what happens in our society, there's a cookie cutter approach applied to investing and what you should do with your money. Right. You read a lot of blogs and, you know, watch a lot of videos and, and, you know, the the consensus is, okay. a majority of people do this and you should do it, too. But that doesn't really apply um, most often. Right. So some people have an objective of taking care of their parents. Some people some people have an objective of having kids and putting them through college. Some people may have an objective of, you know, working and then traveling for a majority of their life. And so based on those personal objectives, then we can help you sit down and say, "Okay, if this is what you desire, now how can we put together a plan to use the tools and resources that are available to help you get there while at the same time protecting whatever assets you have now through risk management, through tax planning, through estate planning, you know, um, and through, you know, I say risk management, insurance planning. And, is that, and op-
0: is that open to any state or is it just Michigan that you can work with?
1: So for that, that's a great question, man, a great question. So for now, um, we are only registered in the state of Michigan. Okay. And as, as our client base grows, uh, you know, full disclosure, to to work with clients in other states, there's a fee. Okay. All right. There's, there's an annual fee. And so since we are based here in Michigan, most of our clients are here in Michigan. But the cool thing about it is, um, by law, we're allowed to work with at least five individuals outside of the state at a time without registering in that state. Awesome, yeah, so so you know, if we have four clients in you know in Pennsylvania and then you know three in Florida or you know four in Cali, we could do that. And then by that time, if it makes sense and we could see that there's a pipeline to be connected to other potential you know, um, clients in that area, then, you know, we'll pay the registration fee so that we can continue to build out our presence in that space.
0: So the natural next question is, how many do you have from North Carolina? I'm in Charlotte. so I, make sure.
1: <laughs> I have zero. I okay. have zero, zero All right. from North Carolina. <laughs> the corner, just make me a little corner,
0: a little spot over there. North Carolina is coming your way.
1: Of course, man. Of course, man. We uh, and you know, honestly, I love that part of the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, Virginia and North Carolina are some of the most beautiful states in the country to me. You you literally get all four seasons. That's right. And the season the seasons are not bad, and you're you're further up along the coastline where you really don't experience hurricanes either. So. Exactly. <laughs> you understand why I'm
0: here. Exactly. You always asking like, why are you in Charlotte? I'm like, you yeah. don't get it.
1: You it's get literally it. <laughs> the
0: perfect location.
1: It is I'm all it's, about it's location. Great. it is uh, great man
0: but uh, so for those who are interested, I know we talked earlier uh how do they reach out to you? I know you mentioned an email that they can reach out to
1: yeah, so probably the best the best way to contact my firm is um the investor relations email, which is i r or indigo Robert at Persia capital p s and Paul. E R S as in Sam, E A as in Alpha, capital C A P I T A L dot com, and you know just shoot an email to that to that address and someone will respond within twenty four hours, or you know um, I, I haven't been that big on social media. My uh, my fiance has really been pushing me to do that, mm-hmm. so um, you can follow me on social media on Instagram at uh, Darina's underscore Jonathan. And on Facebook, you can just look me up at Dorinas Jonathan. I am on Twitter, Okay. Which, uh, I don't I don't tweet that much. And uh, my Twitter handle is uh, let me take it's at underscore Dorinas J. So D as in David, O R E N U S capital J. So uh, sometimes I'll I'll drop a few nuggets on there. Most times it's it's some quotes that I kind of they just kind of pop up in my head in the middle of the night. I'm like, oh, I got to tweet this. But, <laughs> I think I have, like, three followers, so, um, you know, follow me, guys. So here's
0: something that someone <laughs> dropped on me one time. Take all those ideas that you want to tweet about, go ahead and tweet them, then save the draft, then take mm. those quotes and turn them into a book. Mm. Take, then use that book to leverage, um, you know, just different speaking engagements and different things like that. But, well, you know, you and I will talk about that off air. Um, of course. Of how how to leverage branding. That that's that's what I do. Uh um, oh, perfect. If you are a black-owned business or an investor, and you would like to advertise on our show, go ahead and send us a message at DJM at dot com. Now, back to the show. Perfect. So now we we can't just leave here. There's a nugget in the beginning of this episode that we got to get to. What
1: is the best
0: Neil Long movie of all
1: time? Oh man, you gotta, do, oh, you gotta man. do it! Oh man, oh man. I I probably say the best the best Neil Long movie that I could watch um, day in and day out is probably Love Jones. Okay, um, fair enough. But but honestly, I didn't I did I fell in love with Neil Long is probably like one of the I wouldn't say in love, but like uh, uh, in huge crush mode with Neil right. Long. Um, when I was like a young a young boy, it was the most random movie ever. ever. It was uh, Big Mama's house.
0: Wow.
1: Okay. It was Big Mama's house, and it was so that weird makes because sense, I, oh yeah, yeah. But like you know, I think there was one scene where Martin was uh, and and her son were getting ready to like go fishing or something like mm-hmm. that, and she was standing on the porch and she had on like this uh this sun hat with these shorts, and I was like, oh my god, she she's gorgeous, and so ever since then. <laughs> You know, I was like, well, let me let me just check out some more of her stuff. And and, um, and you know, I just kind of like her as an individual. You really don't find anything, you know, negative about her. And, she, right. she you know, to, yeah. And to me, she seems like, you know, a more. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say approachable, but like more like real person. Right. I think that, I think there are some celebrities out there that you kind of feel like, OK, you know, they're amazing. And, you know, they're beautiful, but they really wouldn't be. Be touchable or, or like approachable, right? right. Um, but I feel I feel like you know you could see a Neil Long walking, you know, walking in the mall, and and you know, be like, oh, you know, you know, she she's beautiful or, or she's pretty, and and not feel like you you know you're kind of starstruck.
0: Now l- let me tell you the the moment that Neil Long caught my attention.
1: Okay, she caught
0: my attention on ah um, uh, oh Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. the what, that was that was the game, right? I said, Well, <laughs> well dang. Yeah, was, I know, I know. To me, it was Neil Long and then Myra from uh, Family Matters. Uh those Oh three, really? Yeah, those okay, three, okay. Yeah, I had my eye I, I had everything planned out and everything uh, back then. <laughs> now my second question for you, because we actually had an episode a couple weeks ago uh from someone from Detroit and they were giving me game on uh, all the different uh, things that are uh, popular in Detroit. And I know yes. you're not from there, but uh, what is the best pizza in Detroit? Is it, I think there's buddy's pizza jets pizza. Uh, does any of that sound familiar to you or is there something yeah, really it,
1: different? It it, 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 does sound familiar. So I've, I've been living in Detroit. I think it's uh, five years now, man. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> I've gone through six winners, (laughs) so oh, this would be my six winners. I bet you, I bet you
0: count those every year too. Yes, I do, (laughs) man, I do.
1: But I'd say, uh, I'd say the best, you know, Jets and um, what is it? Hungary was it? Howie's or something like that? I can't remember. But those are uh, or Happy Pizza. Those are the two Michigan pieces. But uh, however, a lot of people are not. They don't know that Little Caesars was founded here in Detroit too
0: yeah yeah I, I had found that out i said man you yeah. just got good pizza but then when you talk to people from detroit they are like no get the Jets, no. Get the no yeah the, the, like, the but jets... i don't know little Caesars has always been good to me
1: <laughs> well you know i'm not i'm not a proponent of little, of little seasons I, i'd say out of the out of the detroit pizza it would probably be uh jets but there is there is one shop that's. uh that's not you know a national franchise and mm-hmm. it's downtown. I think it's called Pizza Populus or something like that. Huh, okay, and they have the the deep dish. You know, uh, I want to say is that Chicago style pizza, and it's probably some of the best pizza in the city. And you can get any any type of topping you can think of, man. And and um, I've eaten it. I've eaten there like maybe once or twice. I don't I don't eat meat anymore, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm really kind of stuck to just, you know, a couple styles of pizza, whether it's veggie or, you know, or cheese. And I, I don't really do cheese that much. I just kind of pick the cheese off because I just like the taste of the pizza. <laughs> right, right, right. But, um, but yeah, I'd say it probably Jets and Pizza Populous are probably my, my two, top two.
0: I'll keep that in mind. Now, you also mentioned something that we have in common. Because, uh, see, I'm a, I, I pay attention. I listen. You said you're a Lakers fan, which so am I. Yes. Now, are you a real Lakers fan, or are you just a uh, LeBron James that came to the team? Now I'm a Lakers fan. Which one are you,
1: man? I've been a Lakers fan since honestly since Kobe's rookie year.
0: Okay, now we're talking. That's Kobe. Big, Kobe, that's a real Kobe fan.
1: So I can't. I can't remember how old I was. Um, oh my god, I may have been in like a, in middle school or something. I remember growing up being a Bulls fan because my dad was a Bulls fan. Right, right. And you know, following Mike and you know the whole thing. And then as I got older, I, I loved basketball. That was my first love. And I remember my uncle told me, he said, man, he said, you need to check out this guy, Kobe Bryant. Mm-hmm. And he's a beast. And, and so I started looking at him, and I just I just fell in love with his game and his work, work ethic, even though, you know, Kobe's first few years in the league. Nobody liked them. You know, they called right. him a ball hog and, you know, showboat and, you know, he was shooting air balls. <laughs> but I, I was I was always a Kobe fan. And that really uh, you know, following him and his career early on really exposed me to the history of the Lakers. And as yeah. I started to learn more about the franchise and the greats that have come through, you know, like the Magic Johnsons and the, you know, uh, the Koreans, like all, you know, all those folks uh uh, I was like, you know what, not Kareem, but Wilt, and like all those folks. I was like, you know what, this is uh, this is a franchise that I can kind of get behind, and and uh, and I've been a Laker fan ever since. Even even for the past five, you know, before LeBron came over, when we were in the doldrums, man. Yeah. We didn't have, you know, you know there was a period of when you know I could talk trash, and then there was a period where I just didn't watch any, any NBA games because I I didn't want to be disappointed. I, I hate losing, man. I, I hate losing, and so. If my team is losing, you know, I just kind of cheer from them from the from the um from the back from the backdrop. But mm-hmm. but now that LeBron is there, you know, I think LeBron's a great player. I I, I would pick Lebron uh, Kobe over LeBron any day. But but um I can see the franchise starting to come back to life now.
0: Yeah, I, I became a Lakers fan. I must have been about seven years old. I was living in Hawaii at the time. And Magic Johnson had just dropped his book. Uh, I forget what the name of the book was, but he was having a signing at one of the bookstores, and I ended up meeting Magic Johnson, getting what? the yeah, getting the uh, the autograph, and uh, I remember him whispering in my ear and, and telling me uh, that I'll be great someday or something mm. to that uh, to that uh, to something along those lines. Yeah, And so Magic, to me, will always be the greatest Laker. Just, you know, mm. I, I almost As have a pro- no choice. Yeah, that's a person I, I know exactly. You know? It's, like, it's
1: but, like, I can't. A man. man gave me a signature. It is what it is.
0: And then <laughs> and then having Kobe, here's the thing about being a real fan. Uh, 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 when you're a real fan, yeah, there are going to be those four or five years. Well, I guess it depends on the team. But if you're a real fan of the Lakers, you know mm-hmm. that there'll be, you know, four or five years of greatness and then maybe, you know, three or four years of, of lean years but Mm -hmm. if you're a real fan it'll all pay off yeah now now you did mention detroit you mentioned lakers how did you feel this is just a a personal conversation you and i the the audience can either decide to leave or not (laughs) how did you how did you feel when detroit busted our tail in the finals and took that championship away from kobe he would have six right now it it wasn't for the
1: pistons Man, like I said, man, I never liked the Pistons, man. I, <laughs> I like, you know, and I tell people here they earned days, that one though. They did, man. But the Pistons were—I felt, you know—the the cool thing about the Pistons is, uh, especially during that time, mm-hmm. their franchise—they stuck to who they were. They weren't trying to be anybody else. Yeah, and, you know, same. their their motto and their their approach was grit. You know, like, look, we're gonna rough you up. We're gonna get in your face and we're gonna go after it, you know, from the time we step on the court to the time we leave. And so, no, you're right. They did earn they did earn that ring, man. But they who they had what, Chauncey Billups? They had uh, Rip um, Hamilton, Prince, Rip Hamilton, Prince. Who else was on that uh, squad? Rasheed um, Wallace. Wallace. Uh I mean like yeah,
0: Rasheed Wallace. It was Ben was Ben.
1: Yeah, Ben was on the team too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And yeah, I'm ben.
1: like, man, these I, you know, they, they were it's really a good, team man. Team. It was a team. Team. It was a. It was. It was a. I mean, and those guys had very similar mentalities, and they they all were on one page, going after one mission. So they they were extremely good. But uh, no, you're right, man. Kobe could have had six, and you know the you know the saying is he could have had more of a. If Shaq would have just had a more of a work ethic, yeah. But we're not we're not gonna get on that topic.
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> I think that's true. But I think the way it plays, I think everything happens for a reason, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. I I
0: think because a a tidbit that people don't know is uh, even though I was a Lakers fan, uh, when Shaq got drafted, I was actually living in Clearwater, Florida, which Mm -hmm. is about three hours or so, maybe closer to four hours from Orlando. And so I uh, being there, there was the Sunshine Channel. I used to see all the Orlando Magic games. Mm. and so i saw Shaq so Shaq was everything and he had his he had his uh footwear he had everything going on in yes. in, in, in Florida and he he was literally the most dominant player of i course. think Shaq had to fall off a little bit in order for Kobe to, to rise to the levels that he was because mm-hmm. if Shaq stays there then we never really know if Kobe is really Kobe and gets you know goes off and gets his own two rings by himself. Well, not by himself. You know, still a team. Yeah,
1: too. it's still a team. But but I, no. I think that
0: was for the best for his own individual legacy.
1: Well, yeah, you know, well, you know, I I hear your point. I and I have to say I I respectfully uh, disagree. Okay. I think I, I, and the reason why I say that is because I Kobe has one of the most advanced um, intellectual mental capacities that I've ever seen with yeah. regards to his determination to be the best no matter what, right? Yeah. And so Shackle had already been in the league for a while before Kobe came and, you know, before they kind of got on the team together. And <clears throat> I mean, Kobe would, Kobe would show up to the gym. No, game day would show up to the gym and shoot like a thousand or two thousand shots before the, before the team even got there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's true. You know, like, like, Kobe would show up to practice, you know, three four hours before the team would come, have his own practice, like literally be drenching in sweat before the team practice. Mm-hmm. And I'm just saying, like, eventually, with that much work ethic and that that much determination to be the best at whatever, no matter no matter where you are or what team you're on, you will outshine. Mm-hmm. And that that that's what I was saying about Shaq's work ethic. He could have stayed on top. He could have been the best. And I was watching this. Um, you know this—I uh, this, would not call it a documentary, but this the segment on HBO, and the segment was about uh, Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, okay. two of the great, two of the greatest coaches uh, to 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 do it right—one in college and one in NFL. It turns out they grew up and they were good friends. But <clears throat> there was a, a particular point in the segment where Nick Saban said, "You know, um, everyone shoots to get to the top of the mountain, right?" right. And when they get to the top of the mountain, they become the mountain because now everyone's coming after them. Right. And Bill Belichick added to that and said, you know, and only the greats are able to get to the top of the mountain and continue to push themselves to be better than what they were. Yeah. Right. And I think that's kind of what differentiated Kobe from Shaquille. Kobe was, I mean, Shaq was great. He got to the top of the mountain. He was the pinnacle. He was I mean they changed the rules of the game for the guy like Shaq. Yes. You know, changed that uh the 3 year the 3 second rule within the paint. They changed that, right? Like because they they put breakaway goals on the backboard because <laughs> of Shaq. he was tearing <laughs> right. like he was literally physically tearing the glass off the boards, right? And he had become the mountain. But if you can not like and this is whatever whether it's sports or business or investing, whatever it is, kind of bringing it full circle. If you can not Um, have the discipline or if you don't have the discipline or the fortitude to reach the top of the mountain and continue to be better than yourself which is the which is tough right because now you're competing with yourself now there is no motivation the motivation of getting from the the valley to the peak is getting to the peak but when you reach the peak now what's the motivation right and so you have to you have to literally motivate yourself and say okay I have to set my own peak and be better than myself and be better than I was yesterday. And that's Kobe's mentality. And that's why I relate to him because it's an inspiration that says, okay, no matter how good you are, you can always be better. There is no perfection, but you can always get better. And I think that's what differentiated the two. And that's why I said, even though, and I think that's where the friction came in at was because Kobe had an expectation, an expectation for himself, And he could see the greatness in Shaq. And I'm pretty sure behind the scenes, there was some conversation of like, look, man, you're better than this. Stop eating three, four cheeseburgers before (laughs) practice and go out and, you know, do some laps, right? And so Kobe, you know, I'm pretty sure that's kind of where the discord uh, uh, began to happen.
0: And I I think, and I agree with you. actually nothing you said that I disagree with. And I think that's why he had to leave. Because (laughs) because, because Kobe had reached a level where Shaq wasn't going to go to yeah and for whatever reason Shaq goes to Miami and him and D-Wade you know they win that last one off of Shaq's last couple of of great years Mm -hmm. and uh you know D-Wade gets that one I don't know if D-Wade ever wins the championship until LeBron comes if not for Shaq
1: yeah Uh, no offense
0: D-Wade um but yeah you know to me, I love, To me, basketball is my, my favorite sport as well. I love the history of it. I watch it every year. Uh, we actually had a couple episodes uh, earlier this year where uh, I predicted, I kind of knew Kawhi Leonard was going to win this whole thing.
1: Wow. But I okay. could
0: feel it. And the reason why was there were so many people that were doubting Uh, you know, his move to Toronto, Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: there it was just so much doubt. And whenever doubt comes in, as somebody who's followed the Lakers, followed Kobe, they doubted him, they doubted Shaq. Every time the the doubt sets in, either you're gonna rise up to it or you're gonna disappear,
1: exactly. So,
0: I doubted doubted that he would just disappear off into the sunset. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I I knew Kawhi was gonna have to either win this or never show his face again. Yeah, Uh, so he definitely did that. So, who do you have in closing? Who do you have this year? Who do you think wins the championship?
1: Um, now, I mean, honestly, now that you know we have some somewhat of a team, of course I'm riding with the Lakers, man. Right. I'm riding with the Lakers. I mean, we we got we have a good squad. We have two you know key two key players that are you know on the franchise. Um, <clears throat> I know they're still kind of working out some things in the back office or you know in the C-suite, but I think on the court um, we definitely have a fighting chance, especially with. You know, some of the shakeup that's happened in the um the Western Conference with uh the Warriors and you know, I haven't I haven't been watching um, Houston, Houston play with uh Westbrook and uh the beard, Harden. uh Harden. But um, you know, I you know, not to get into too much basketball, I just don't know how long that'll pan out. I just mm-hmm. think it's tough to play with Westbrook. <laughs> there, there's there's a reason why, you know, most people kind of disseminated from that original OKC team.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's very frantic. It's not it's not in control. It's all over the place. Yeah. It, yeah. It does yeah. produce points, but it doesn't produce happiness and joy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and that to me is key. I think you were mentioning earlier about even in investing. Uh, You know, everybody has different uh gauges of what they're looking for. I want to win, but I also want to have fun, too. Exactly. exactly. You know, Um, yeah. but I will say this and, and I'll let you go uh if if we do get a little bit further on i would like to see and I, i'm trying to speak it into existence every chance i get i see vince carter off in atlanta you know doing this last year in atlanta and the the record isn't looking too good i would love somehow some way for vince carter to get a buyout and come over to the lakers for a, a championship <laughs> run yeah. because yeah. i don't think he's ever had like a real yeah. legitimate chance Exactly, and I, I and exactly. he's still balling. So this ain't no, this yeah. ain't no, you know, just you know, uh, uh, charity case here.
1: Exactly, I this, mean, I really he, think he's... he
0: would add value in clutch moments. I would love to see Vince Carter come to the Lakers uh, for a championship run.
1: That would be great, man. Like you know, Vince Carter is definitely one of the best players to play the game. I remember, um, I remember growing up, and I, I don't know if you remember that poster where Vince Carter was essentially stressed out, like yeah, you know, with. one of the uh, the most athletic players I've ever seen uh, play the game. And, I, I, you know, I, I, that would be great for Vince. And, you know, I would love to see that, too, especially as he kind of, uh, you know, kind of rides off in the sunset from his career.
0: Definitely, definitely. Uh, Duranis, thank you so much for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. You know, the doors are open for you to come back. And I actually uh, want to talk to you uh, more in the future as well. Cause I know uh, I've been working with some people at uh, looking at uh, investing internationally, especially different countries in Africa. Okay. I think you and I would would have some really good conversations of how do we execute that? What is the best way to do that? Um, you know, moving forward, I have a lot of people interested. The question is of, of, of the how, uh, of of how to execute it and get that done. I, I would look forward to that conversation as well.
1: No, I think that that would be a good topic and that's uh that's definitely something that, you know, has been buzzing up in our community. Um, yeah. And most of, I mean, mostly because the Chinese, they've been there. Um, they've exactly. been there for a while and they're, they're snatching up a lot of, um, of opportunities and resources. But secondarily, you know, um, as the, the most important thing with that area, and, you know, I guess we can kind of end it on this note, but the most important thing with that area is the infrastructure. Right, yeah, and so, if there is an opportunity to invest over there, and I tell people this all the time, look for opportunities to invest in infrastructure. and okay. um, would love to have that conversation. And when I say infrastructure, I mean you know roads, um bridges, you know, even technology infrastructure with regards to um you know five g or telecom or whatever it may be, um, are there infrastructure opportunities that you know you can be become a part of because with developing or growing countries, the infrastructure starts first. And then from there, things can kind of build and expand. I think gotcha. I think getting, gotcha. into, getting into the other space is a little bit too far ahead of the curve. You know, with investing, timing is key. And so you don't want to be too far out because you may not mm-hmm. actually realize or recognize the, uh, the return on your investment. And so, however, you still want to be a little bit ahead of the curve so that you're not overpaying for something. And so I think as infrastructure is continuing to be built, There's opportunity there. Um, The question is just, you know, how do you work through some of the political risk? And I think that's the main thing for me. That's the question that I'm looking to get an answer to. Mm -hmm. How do you how do we work through the political risk of putting our international dollars into their domestic economy and being able to, you know, keep track of those dollars and get the returns back? And, And so that that's a question that needs to be answered. I think once that question is answered, then you'll see a ton of money flow into the into the into the area. That's what I'm
0: studying. Um, We've had several different uh, people that are, you know, in the area. That's what I'm looking at, the political risk. And now that you mentioned that uh, people have talked about your infrastructure, I like that approach because now we're looking at foundation. And before you build anything, you have to have a solid foundation. Exactly. And and that would actually make the most sense because we should be the foundation uh, over there. Mm -hmm. So why not invest in foundation? Exactly. So, yeah, yeah you, you you're you hitting it on the nail. So next time you come, uh, we'll probably have some more information. And I want us to dive into uh, that topic and see at that point, you know, where can we go uh, as far as uh, a strategy uh, moving forward?
1: Yeah, man, I'd I love to have the conversation. And thanks for having me on today.
0: Oh, definitely. Thank you for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. And say that e- email address one more time.
1: Email uh, so can- The email address is IR at...
0: We are truly grateful for today's guest. If you are interested in becoming an approved Black Equity Strategic Partner with this company or one in the past, simply send us an interest inquiry to the following email djm at djmoultry.com. Once again, djm at djmotri.com. Let us know your name, your company, your services, and which guests you are interested in partnering with. As an approved partner, you will have exclusive access to our network and have first opportunity at future partnerships as well. Thank you for tuning in and be sure to join us on the next episode of the Black Equity Podcast.